This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. May God write it on our hearts that we might not sin against him. Well, I have the joy of concluding our time here in this Advent season uh, in the book of Luke. I get to, um, last week we kind of, we learned about the climax of our Advent season, which is the coming, the incarnation, the thrusting of God upon humanity. God bursting onto the scenes in a form of this humble, little, very irregular, I'm sorry, very regular and uh, seemingly insignificant baby. But now we get to see, as in, in any good story, there is a, a climbing, there is a climbing action, there is a climax, but then there's a resolution. There is a falling action away from the climax towards the ending of the story. And so that's kind of what we get today. But the good news is, this isn't the ending of the story. This is much more of a beginning than anything we've, we've done thus far. This is the initiation to Jesus as a boy, and then coming Growing, as you heard read in the last verses of our text, growing up to become strong, become wise, and then eventually the next passage is to see him teaching in the temple and then living his life out in perfect submission to the commands of God and then dying on the cross and rising again for sinners like you and me. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we get to kind of see the beginnings of today. And so if you are interested after this sermon, if you haven't heard or studied about uh, the life of Jesus, I encourage you to go back on our Facebook page and our website and look at our study through the Gospel of John to get a good and deeper understanding of Jesus as the Son of God. But that being said, our text today is one of hope. Our text today is one of joy, of singing, of triumph, and of people seeing God's promises made real to them and being overwhelmed with excitement that that he did so. So let's dive into our text now. There's going to be, I struggled to come up with an outline on this text, but there's going to be really three three main points, and it's going to center around three people, right? So it's going to be Mary and sin. So Mary and sin, that'll be point number one, Mary and sin. Second will be Simeon and the Spirit. Simeon and the Spirit. And lastly, we will see Anna, sorry, I have it written down here somewhere, Anna and simplicity. Anna and simplicity. That will be our three points. Mary and sin, Simeon and the Spirit, Anna and simplicity. Okay, let's dive in to our text, and may God be gracious therein. Okay, so as I said, we're concluding sort of our incarnation um, story this morning. We're concluding our time of seeing God thrust into uh, his own creation, him literally descending in his condescension, coming to uh, man, wrapping himself in human flesh and dwelling among them to live as one of them, being tempted in every way that we are tempted and yet remain perfect. We see that. So we continue our story of incarnation today, immediately following those events with the story of Jesus's family attempting to obey the commands of God, which is nearly almost is nearly always how stories of such significance begin. It is a man or a family or a people obeying the commands of God and God choosing to do something extraordinary through them. Think of Job, right? Think of, think of Abraham receiving the, the promise of God calling him out and then becoming a, the faith-filled man that we know him as. We see Nehemiah being able to raise up and restore Israel and Jerusalem to what it was only because he was being faithful where he was in the beginning. 
We see Daniel being faithful to his own God despite a decree where another false God, a king, would say, bow to me. Daniel said, no, I bow to one and one alone, and that is God. And God uses him to change a people, right? So God's, the great stories of faith within the scripture typically begin with just people trying to be faithful. And that's what you and I should endeavor to do as well. In this passage, we see Mary and Joseph and Jesus. uh, The there in this passage, T-H-E-I-R, that's who this is talking about there in the beginning of our text. There being Mary, Joseph, Jesus on their way to Jerusalem. They wanted to obey the law of the Lord. The law of Moses, it says in our text, a.k.a. the law of the Lord. So this is what law, you might ask. This is Leviticus uh, 12 that they are specifically referring to. Um, We read in Leviticus 12 that God has set forth uh, many regulations and uh, many uh, commands as to what is clean and unclean. That, the entire passage, I, I encourage you to go, and if you haven't, I know a lot of people talk about Leviticus, like it's like the, the roadblock and the speed bump um, on everyone's year-long Bible reading plan. Um, I encourage you, go back and try and read it all in one sitting. And it will, it, it will, it should, and I pray, will come to life off the page at you, especially once you get closer and closer and closer into Leviticus 16, which is essentially the center of the law of God, the first five books. It really revolves around this day of atonement that God instituted. But Leviticus 12 is just before that, and it's talking about how to make oneself clean or how to designate oneself as unclean before coming and worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth as God has set forth. So here, the law that they're attempting to obey here in the beginning parts of our, of our text is, in fact, Leviticus 12. This law in particular states that after a woman of the people of Israel gives birth to a child, they are to, this, this woman, this new mother, is to continue to purify themselves for about the first 33 days, is what the, the law says in Leviticus 12. After the mother gives birth, there is typically a flow of blood that comes from her. This is true for nearly all women of all times in, in all of history, right? This is what happens in the body after a woman gives birth. Gives birth. And, and, and so the people of Israel, they associated blood, especially this type of, of blood, with death, with sin. And a lot of scholars would think it, it actually... Uh, could connect to the curse that was given in the Garden of Eden um, in uh, Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, where God says, childbearing is no longer going to be fun for you, Eve. It's going to be hard. It's going to be laborious. It's going to be difficult for you. But but, uh, one day, right, Genesis 3.15, one day, there, there will be someone who comes from among you, the seed of the woman, will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. We get the proto evangelion from that text. But the curse is still active, right? The curse of sin and the breaking of the covenant of, of God that Adam and Eve uh, partook in and, the, and thereby we are all subject to is, is a reminder that childbearing, childbirth is no longer going to be this, this pleasant thing that it would have been pre-fall, that it would have been if sin had not come into the world. It would have been only joyous. We get to taste the joy of holding, right? How does the song go? Uh, the, the joy of holding a newborn baby, Right, like as uh, uh, because he lives, uh, uh, it tells us. Thank you, Bill and uh, Gloria. I think Gloria Gaither is that her name? Bill and something Gaither. The Gaithers wrote that. It was. It's an awesome hymn. Uh, but this is really odd verse about holding a newborn baby. Right, the joy that comes with holding a newborn 
baby. It's no longer going to be that. We get tastes of that, but the actual process is going to be really difficult and hard and laborious. So, so the, therefore, in the people's eyes, because of what happened in the beginning, it may seem strange, but the Israelites, God's people, the Jewish people, associated the blood with childbirth that comes after to be a reminder of their own sin, right? So that's what God is doing in Leviticus 2. God is issuing this command because if blood and childbirth equals sin, now a woman gives birth, she bleeds, she is now unclean and unrighteous. God says this. He, he puts this forth in his law. God is issuing a command to Israel here that might seem strange and out of place or maybe over-contextual to their surroundings, but I don't necessarily think it is. I think it's good for us to dwell on. It might seem strange to think about the, the blood after a woman gives birth reminding us of our own sin and how is this a good God that instituted this such weird law that says a newborn mother is now unclean until she purifies herself in the temple? How could a good God do this? Well, just think God is reminding us even in the, the issuing of this command in order um, so that, that during the pains of childbirth and, and the aftermath of those pains, uh, the family might remember that childbirth was not always meant to be difficult. It was not always meant to be laborious. It was only after the fall that God decreed childbirth was unpleasant to, to women. It's to remind us of the fact that we are sinners. This law is amazing. It shows that God simultaneously wants to remind us of our own sin and failings. And yet, in, if you read Leviticus 12, it will show up as God making a way to make things pure. God doesn't just say, you're unclean, and then just wait these 30 days. No, no, no. He says, you're unclean, and then come to me. I will make you clean. Do it this way, because I'm a God that believes in doing things by a regulated standard, because I've, told, I've given you commands. Come to me this way, and I'll make you clean. This law is amazing. It shows that God simultaneously wants to remind us of our sin and yet purify us of that according to his good, good will and good word. We can be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of our sins. And this is even true of those people in the Old Testament who lived by the Levitical law. This is really important for us to remember for a number of reasons that this is the law that Mary is trying to follow. This is where they are going, to Jerusalem. They have waited their period They've waited their, their time of purification. Mary is, is passed through this sort of purification time, these 33 days, and they are coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to, make to offer sacrifice so that Mary could be considered by God's standard pure. So they want to obey and submit to these laws. Remember we talked about last week. They are devout Jews. They love God. They love his laws, and they want to obey. So they're attempting to do that now. This is really important for us to remember for Mary. A few things come to, to mind about this, primarily that she is no different than any other God-fearing woman after Eve. She is no different. Mary is a faithful woman of God, period. She is no different in her being than anyone else that has come before or after her since Eve was created from the rib of Adam. She is a sinner, and she is reminded of her, sin, of her sin during this time of purification that she's waited for. She's been reminded for 33 days, based on God's law, that I am a sinner, I need forgiveness, I need to be made clean by God. She fully acknowledges her own sin 
and the sins of mankind, and she makes provision for those sins, listen, according to how God has said, right? According to God's word. If we worship God in any other way than his, than his word has ordained that we should worship him, we are no longer worshiping God. We are worshiping what we think God should be. That is not the same person. God is to be worshiped according to his word, by his word, for his glory, that last part's really, really important. It must be according to his word. God has given them a command. They want to obey in that manner. This is why God is so incredibly specific in his law about the procedures for a situation like this. Because he's saying, whatever these other people do for worship, you're not going to be like them. Do what I say. I'm, I am holy. I alone am holy and good and loving and kind and omnipotent and omniscient and all-knowing. I am the one true God. Therefore, if I tell you to do it this way, it's for your good. And it's good to follow the law of God. In Leviticus 11, verse 44 and 45, it says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And you shall therefore be holy as I am holy. God wants us to come nearer to him than we are right now. And that comes through obedience to his word. That's why they're coming to the temple. That's why they're making this long march up to Jerusalem. That's why they're they're guaranteed to sing the Psalms of Ascent going up to that great city on the hill, that Jerusalem. The entire purpose of God giving his people these laws and commands is to make sure they know who they worship and how they ought to worship him. Mary, by her, and this is the, the second thing that I kind of want to point out about Mary participating in this, specifically Mary, by her, her own understanding and biblical qualifications, without a doubt, she understands she's a sinner. Because she's doing this, she knows that she has participated in sin after the pattern of her mother Eve, right? She is in need of purification. She is in need of being forgiven, of being cleansed, of of having her sin removed and the righteousness of God placed on her. She is not perfect. Do not be deceived by papists who would make the claim that Mary was a perfect person worthy of praise and prayer in the same way that Jesus is. This is a fallacy. They have no biblical precedent to make these claims. There is no evidence that Mary is in contrast to Romans 3.23. That for all, including Mary, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And guess what? That includes you and me as well. We have fallen. We are fallen creatures who need God's cleansing. This is indeed a dogma of the Catholic Church. So if you're here and you consider yourself a Catholic, you must believe this in order to be considered Catholic. That's what dogma means. In other words, you can't call yourself Catholic and not believe that Mary was perfect. That because she birthed Christ, she had to have been sinless and sinless after. If Mary was sinless, she would have no need of atoning for that sin. She would not need the very law that she is marching up to Jerusalem to fulfill. Mary is just like any other woman of Israel who has given birth to a firstborn son. But the son she has given birth to is unlike any that has come before him. He is God made man. He is God and man wrapped together in this perfect little humble bundle of joy that is a baby. 
Also in keeping with the law, his parents, Jesus' parents, his adoptive, his stepfather, if you will, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, are also wanting him to follow the law as well. So they're bringing him up to be presented in the temple. It's committed to raising this this presentation is one that is made uh, with the the parents and the priests where they are dedicating together and committing themselves to the raising of this child in the fear and admonition of of the Lord that he would live a holy life in accordance with God's commands. That's what this presentation is at the temple. It's not some pageantry. It's definitely not a baptism. Just going to throw that out there. It's not a baptism. It's not some pageantry where we hand a baby a letter and say, open it on the day that you're saved. No, it's just the commissioning of parents that says, hey, this is, this is who you have chosen to be. You are God's people. Raise this child as such. And that's it. It's that simple, but that profound. To raise a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord takes your entire being. Can I hear an amen from the parents? Yeah. Like, it is difficult but they want to keep in, in step with God's commands. So they take Jesus up to this temple. They present him to the priests. The priests consecrate him. They, uh, they are together, priest, temple, people, and family coming together to raise this child. Think, uh, think about this again for a, a, a moment. I want to remind you of the quote I shared last week by J.I. Packer because I've continued to chew on it the more I think about the incarnation. The more I think about what Jesus did in coming as a baby, it, it absolutely blows me. J.I. Packer said this, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And he's, he's British. He knows good, good, good fantasy, right? He knows good fiction. And yet he says nothing else out there compares to, to how staggering and amazing this is. Think about that quote again for just a moment. The Lord is being set apart so that his parents would raise him in the fear and admonition of himself, the, the laws that he was privy to give to his, his people, the, the, the laws, the, the very creation that he got to speak over and that was created through him and for him and by him, that very creation that his people then rebelled against and everything fell into chaos, that he then came and was party to giving the law of God. He is now obeying that very law. His, his parents are setting aside him the baby Jesus, to be raised in the commands of of God, the commands that he gave his people, he is now being raised under. The more you think about the incarnation, the more absolutely crazy it is. And the more absolutely good it becomes for the Christian to remember that God did this. The presentation of Jesus at the temple was a sign of what's to come, the redemption of his people. To be be presented in in the temple was to say, this child, though he was born into sin, though he was born into wickedness and iniquity, by presenting him in the temple, you're saying, we are going to redeem this child together. We are praying that God is redeeming this child by the obedience to his commands, by the obedience to what God has said in his law. And so this is a precursor to what is to come when this baby, who is then being presented and thus redeemed in the temple, will then go on to present and redeem a people who are going to stand before his God, and that he gets to make innocent, that he gets to put his seal of approval on. 
so good. His parents are obeying the commands of God now by presenting their son as a holy child of Israel so that he will grow up and that he, the holy one of Israel, not just a holy child, but the holy one of Israel, will present his people as holy and blameless. R.C. Sproul said, the redeemer in following the law had to be redeemed. He had to be set apart. He had to be made holy in the same way that every other child is. Before he could ever save anyone, he must obey the commands of Christ. The one who brought about the new covenant had to be given the promise, the promised sign of the old covenant, which is circumcision, which is a part of this presentation. In the midst of this presentation, in the midst of this glorious moment where Mary and Joseph are, are coming together and they're, they're obeying the commands of Christ with their new baby and they're rejoicing together, in the midst of this, a man comes forth. A man who is only spoken of here, who has never heard from again or before. All we know about him is what Luke records for us. And yet this man is amazing. So it brings us to our next point. Simeon and the Spirit. Simeon and the Spirit. Verse 25 and 26 tell us all we know about this man named Simeon. Very little is known about him apart from what we read here. All we know is what Luke is choosing to communicate to us here that God had inspired Luke to do, right? Because the prophets didn't write out of their own heart, but were carried along by the Spirit, right? Peter's writings affirm this. All we know is what is shared here, which is a very interesting way to describe someone, right? It's, this is an incredibly interesting way to describe a person, a person filled with the Spirit. There was a man uh, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. These are very intentional qualifications and, and, and characteristics that Luke is putting on this man. These are a big deal. The word righteous here is literally meaning made in right standing before God. It is, he is made in good standing with God. He has been atoned for. He has been redeemed. He is a person of Israel after God's own heart. He is a righteous man. And the word for devout means careful according to the law. He is, he is careful according to what God has told him that he should do or not do. He is careful according to the law. So this man is both justified, aka being made right by God, and he's sanctified. He's careful about the law. This is, a, this is a man who's been set apart by God as a holy, faithful, loving kind, obedient man. This is, these are really good qualifications that Luke is putting on this man. It also says that he is waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is interesting language. This isn't just the, the political renewal and political restoration that the Pharisees and Sadducees and everyone in Israel was hoping for. It's, it's not just that. This is meant to connotate a, a longing for the deeper promises that God has made before. This, this is contained the deeper promises that refer to a kinsman redeemer that's going to come. Remember back last year at this time to our study in Luke, how there's going to be a, a greater kinsman redeemer than even Boaz was, right? This, this great kinsman who would be from among his people, but yet redeem his people. The suffering servant that was long foretold in the book of Isaiah in 53, going to, towards the, the end of the, the book, this, this, this seed of the, the woman that is going to rise up. Uh, he's waiting for that. He's waiting for salvation of his people, not just political restoration. 
And Simeon, as we'll see in his song, is waiting for the salvation of the Lord, not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles that he talks about. There is a a both and going on, which we're going to get to his song in just a, a moment. He is waiting for the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Christ of Israel. And he knows that this will not just be for Israel's good, but through the offspring of Abraham, whom, whom uh, the promised seed goes through, through the offspring of Abraham, the entire world, the nations will be blessed. And that's who we have in Jesus. Because he came and he died and he rose again to secure to himself a people, not just from one, one race, one nation, but from all peoples. Ethnos, right? From all peoples. Make disciples of all nations. Ethnos. From all people groups across the world. Jesus has purchased and ransomed for himself a people. And that's what he's waiting on. That's what he's ready for. That's what Simeon is longing and praying for. He's waiting for this Messiah. As future evidence, I'm sorry, as further evidence of his faith, our text talks about the Holy Spirit being upon him. We're going to see uh, really intentionally, the Holy Spirit's work um, in a very involved and intentional ways as we get into the book of Acts. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about how this is an amazing statement and goes against what a lot of us have learned about the Holy Spirit, that he's only uh, come after Acts 2, just not a thing. Um, he's always been. He always will be. He is God, triune, right? But uh, we are going to spend a, a lot more time talking about the Holy Spirit in the future, but I will say a few things. As I've said, he is God. The Nicene Creed, um, which was one of the first written, uh, sort of set-apart creeds of the Christian faith, which a, a creed is simply a short statement that Christians can rally around as uh, common ground, right? If you believe this, we, we would consider you Orthodox Christian. We would consider you true to the faith. The Nicene Creed about the Holy Spirit states, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. There again, these men that wrote Moses, who wrote Leviticus, it wasn't just Moses writing that thing. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through him. He ushered him along in the writing of And so this Holy Spirit has always been. He's always been around. He's always been at work. Whether we see him hovering over the face of the water in the beginning of all creation, before there was even land and before there was animals, before we were even here, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the earth. And we see, and then he goes on to where he's fulfilling judges and prophets of Israel to speak up on his behalf, either call out, and call out against Israel or encourage Israel to call out against the rest of the world. He's, he's empowering his people to do that. He's, he's clothing Gideon in courage as he's preparing him for battle. The Holy Spirit is the one giving Samson his strength in order to defeat the Philistines. He's the one who is even setting apart and confirming David as the, the boy king of Israel, the one, the true king of Israel, where as Saul was just a shadow of what David was going to be. And David is even a shadow of the, of the greater king who's, who would become the son of David, the one who's coming from the city of David that we learned about last week. The Holy Spirit's been there. We could go on and on for hours talking about the great work that the Holy Spirit has done up to this point. The Spirit has always been an inspirer, helper, guide, strengthener, and sealer of our faith. He's always been this. 
He's been a guide to those who love and obey the Lord, and he's still doing that today. That same spirit who just did all of that, who has been with Simeon and brought him to that temple to be face to face before the, the Lord, if you believe in Christ and you have been redeemed by the person of Jesus and you place your hope in the completed work of the gospel, that spirit dwells within you. He leads you. He encourages you. He confirms your election in you. It's a good thing to remember the spirit. He's still doing work today. Louis Burkhoff, the great uh, systematic theologian, says this in his great work. He says, uh, perseverance may be defined as a continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that has begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end, end quote. He begins the work of grace in us, the Spirit does. The Spirit sets his seal on us, breathes the breath of life in us, redeems us. He begins this work of grace so we know that he will see it through to the end. This is the Spirit that has always been, will always be in the same Spirit that is referenced now as, being, as filling Simeon. He had revealed to Simeon that he would not taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's anointed one or the Lord's Messiah. The one who had been long foretold, this is the baby. That's Jesus. Simeon don't know that yet, right? But the moment he comes in, the spirit was with this man as he come up. He trusted the Lord. He was regularly coming to the temple to worship. He trusted the Lord and he went day after day after day to the temple looking for this Christ. He was eagerly anticipating Christ coming into the world. He was ready. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. He knew what God had said about bringing a Messiah. He knew that there would be a Redeemer, and he's ready. He is actively participating in the waiting, right? He is waiting, which is a passive act, but he's actively doing that. He is waiting and searching out for this Messiah. It is more than likely that he had gained a reputation uh, as that guy at the temple, right? It's, it's very uh, easy to make jumps of if he's coming to the temple day after day and looking for the Christ, he probably gained a reputation for himself. I don't know um, what size town all of you are from. A lot of you are kind of local and that's okay, but I don't I grew up in a really small town and we had like that guy in town, right? The guy that you don't really notice until like you don't see him anymore. And you're like, where'd that guy go? We had this guy on a, a bike. He was... Uh, he just kind of, one of those giant three-wheeled bicycles had a huge basket in the, the back. He was a strange guy, funny. Everyone loved him, but he just rolled around town day in, day out, night, day. He was just riding his bike all around town. He was an elderly guy, but we, we all knew him. I think his name was Joe. We, nobody knew his name. We just knew of him, right? But when he stopped coming around, we all kind of took notice. We all kind of understood, where, where's he been? What's going on here? That's kind of what I feel like it would be for the people in the temple after Simeon stops coming. Simeon isn't going to come as often anymore because why? He's seen the Christ. He's getting ready to go die. He's thankful that now he gets to, to participate in the death that is awaiting him because he's seen the Christ. On this day, while the spirit was with Simeon, Simeon found him. He found the Christ that he'd been searching for. He had found the Messiah that had been long foretold. The spirit that dwelled within Simeon led him uh, to the word made flesh. It led him to this. Two members of the Trinity in, in the same room, 
Holy Spirit, Son of God, take that, Unitarians, right? Your move. Two, two parts of the Trinity within the same room. It says the Holy Spirit led him here, and then God made flesh, the Son, Jesus, the, the second member of the Trinity, both dwelling within the temple right now. The moment we saw this boy, the, the moment Simeon saw this boy, he knew that this was the Christ, the one he had been searching for. He scooped up Jesus into his arms. He held him close, as close as he would, uh, the deep promises of, of God. He held him close. He blessed him. And this led to him something, doing something that may seem strange to you, but it really shouldn't. He sang. He sang. He broke out in song. Realized promises of God led him to sing the redeeming providence of God. This man knew the heart of worship. The astounding nature of the coming of Christ should lead us to sing. Why do you think there's so many songs about this time? Because people, even in their, their lost, blind state, can recognize the, the good thing that Christmas is to be reminded of the coming of Jesus. And, and guess what? It leads them to sing, Right? Lost people will write songs about Jesus coming and and being born of a virgin and and coming and dying for the sins of men. They're going to write about the gospel even though they're in sin. Why is that? Because they understand that this is a glorious thing that's happening. It it is not lost on them that this is a miraculous thing that we now celebrate uh, in December every single year. How much more should it be important for us to sing about the promise, the realized promises of God. Do you realize that four out of the six weeks we've been studying uh, the Advent, during this Advent time, four of the six weeks we've been studying in uh, Advent, there's been a song of some sort. Somebody is singing something, right? Whether it's Zacharias, whether it is, is the angels singing in heaven, whether it's Mary singing, or now whether it's Simeon singing and rejoicing because he's found the Messiah. People sing when they come in contact with God's promises realized. This is the natural outworking of inward awe. They are awestruck by the person of God and they want to sing about it. They can't contain it in their bones and in their lungs anymore. They want to let it out. They understand the good truths and promises of God. They're awestruck by the glory and goodness of the one who loves them so. And these things begin to boil over into this magical thing called song. I mean, it's just, it's unreal how music has had a way to connect with people over the centuries. Before there were vocal performances, people were just, were just uh, loving the idea of sitting under music and then, and, and then written lyrical music kind of went away for a while and people were enamored with this classical movement of, of instrumentation, people like Beethoven and Mozart. And then, and then we move on and now it's like everybody's writing music, right? The, the, you can literally search for days and weeks and months on iTunes and never see all the artists that are on there, Right? People love music. Songs express something and connect to something within us like few other things do. Speaking as your worship leader for just a moment, as your worship pastor, I'd like to be frank. This stuff, the fact that they're singing, this matters, and it should matter to you, and it should matter to me, and it should matter to us collectively as a people. It matters that we want to sing about the good things of God. It matters that you do or do not 
feel a compulsion to sing the praises of God. That typically is reflective of an inward heart posture, good or bad. It is a good thing to sing about the God who has saved you. And it should be a normal thing to do so without shame. Keith Getty says, a saved people are a singing people. C.S. Lewis even said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The praises of God are the natural outworkings of his revealed goodness to a sinner. So sing and do not be ashamed. This man has no concept of shame in this moment. He scoops up this this child and he sings at the top of his lungs this glorious song. This man has no concept of shame, of embarrassment, of guilt in the presence of the Savior that he's waited so long to see. Could you imagine how good it must feel for him to hold this promise made flesh, this confirmation of everything he's been doing for these long years, coming to the temple, waiting on this before him. He now gets to hold it and sing to it. He could not even fathom the concept of embarrassment. He's too overwhelmed. He's too filled up to be embarrassed. Neither should you. Neither should we. Sing. Sing fully as to the Lord. Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan, said, in public worship, all should join. Little strings go to make up a concert just as well as the great. We'll let that sit. Sing. Don't be ashamed. Sing. Sing the truths of God. Look at what, yes, and don't just sing anything, right? Sing the truths of God. Don't sing ambiguous things about God that you think are true, but you're not really sure. Sing God's truths. That's why we are so intentional about what we sing here at RBC, because we want to We know God has been intentional about what he's communicated. We want to sing those things. Because if God is about them, we want to be about them. And what does he sing? He sings the truths of God. He sings about God's character and nature and the promises that God's given him. Look at what this this brother's saying in response to the joy that he felt in seeing a divine promise come into being. uh, uh, Verses 29 through 32. I'm going to read them now. Lord, let you... Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He's singing according to God's word. It's even in his song. Uh, I, Lord, you, have, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to what you have said. You have said this, now I'm rejoicing because what you've said has come true. It's been made reality, and you have done this. So I'm going to sing in light of that. These are good things. He's singing about God's promises, God's grace and salvation, God's provision for him, God's word, God's people, God's glory. These are all things that you can find within this just one stanza of this song that he sings at the top of his lungs. These are... These are things that should be taking up space in your voice box. Your voice, your chest should be filled with these truths. These are not just private truths. He's letting all know that this is real. This is not just him in his prayer closet. He's in the midst of the temple. There are people around giving sacrifices and doing great things for God. 
And he is coming publicly, corporately, singing this truth. This is why we sing together. Matthew Henry said this, a secret worship is better the more secret it is. So public worship is better the more public it is. So let's strive to be a people who worship God publicly and have our public worship be even more so. Simeon's worship was nothing if not public. There was no doubt that any in the temple who he was worshiping and how he was worshiping him is the object of your affection and the object of your praise, the object of your worship so evident? Is it so clear as Simeon's was? I pray that it is. After his song, the text says that Mary and Joseph marveled at this man's song, at the truths that had been revealed to him and that he sang about. But then Simeon turned his attention to Mary in a very strange aside. He, He sort of pulls her to the side almost, even though he's in the presence of Mary and Joseph. He almost turns his direction straight to Mary and he he says something. So just as John's birth was closely followed by prophecy about his life, so the birth of Jesus here in our text is closely followed with prophecy about his and specifically prophecy about his in relation to Mary. Simeon tells Mary that there will be a separation that will be taking place because of this child. There will be those who either die to themselves a fall or rise with him, sorry, that they would die to themselves and rise with him, or they would reject him and continue to live in opposition to God's grace. So there will be a separation taking place. He also tells Mary that the same sword that will cause this separation will fall on her and will lead to her darkest moment. At the death of Jesus, the sword the sword that we long saw back that God placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, the sword that stood there to prevent a sin-stained Adam and Eve from coming back into the Garden and from any of his people into entering into the presence of God, that sword would ultimately fall on Jesus. It's the same one, the sword that represented God's good and holy judgment against sin and his protection of his goodness and holiness, that sword fell on Jesus, finally, and once for all. He took the full force of the piercing of that sword, of God's wrath, and did so in order that he might, might set apart for himself a people, and a people made known. This great work, this this work of Christ's atoning death, whereby in living in perfect submission, as we've seen in this text, him, even from a baby, was living in submission to God's commands. Throughout the rest of his life, he would maintain that perfect submission. He would go to the cross, die the death he did not deserve, so that we could participate in the resurrection with him that we did not deserve. He died, and then he rose again, securing for all time his people. And one day he will come again. There will be a second advent. He will come. He will redeem people. But this, even though this is good news, and this is the gospel, which literally means good news, this is the darkest day. The atoning death of Jesus is the darkest day of Mary's entire life. Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She was not married and gave birth to a son. A son that was Emmanuel, God with us. God promised that the son would come and that the son was indeed, in fact, God in the flesh. And he came, 
He was born. He lived perfectly. He taught great, marvelous things, and he went, and he died. And Mary was there. Mary watched at the cross as, he, as Jesus committed Mary to John and John to Mary. This is the darkest day in Mary's life, and it's the darkest day in human history when humanity killed God in the flesh. You and I participated in that. It's because of our sins included that Jesus had to go and die to ransom back for himself a people. But Mary, her beloved promised son was slaughtered in a very public fashion. You can be assured that that had a deep impact on Mary. And that's what Simeon is pointing to here. He says, this sword is going to fall and it will pierce your own soul as well so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now this, this, this separation that's taken place, it's going to reveal the hearts of man. This sword that fell, it's going to reveal where God's people stand and where humanity's allegiance will lie. But there's also great joy that comes when that same child, after being killed and laid in the tomb, rises from the grave. This joy that she has in the resurrection, when she gets to meet Jesus again face to face, is a joy that will never be taken away by anything. This is a joy that will last eternal. Because she knows she gave birth and watched this son grow, watched this son die, and now she gets to watch this son rise and go up and be glorified again. That joy, she's going to hide that in the treasure trove of her heart so that when future days become difficult, she can look back. You can remember last week, the text says that she stored up these things in her heart. She treasured these things. We should too. Treasure, store up the good things of God. Our story continues by showing us another who's found that same sustaining joy that Mary found, that Simeon found, that Zacharias found. There's a, another who found that same joy as well in the coming of the Messiah. That's Anna. So point number three, Anna and simplicity. Anna and simplicity. So quite suddenly and almost a... Luke is a fan of these really quick scene changes, even though this is still at the temple, and even though this is still uh, very much in the presence of the sacrificing people of Israel, um, there's almost like a really sudden change of topic happening. Luke is a fan of this. He's going to do this a lot. We'll see in Acts, um, and, it, and that's okay, right? Sometimes we need extreme change. But here we see that we are thrust suddenly into the story of this, this woman named Anna. Now, Anna is an old woman who has been widowed for many years. Uh, she was more than likely a widow that is living either on the temple grounds or near the temple grounds because it was the priest's responsibility to care for the orphans and the widows. Um, and so they would uh, sometimes have them live either at the temple or very near the temple so they could go and take care of them. So they were doing this. She was either 84 years of age or closer to pushing 100. She was old, right? The youngest she probably is is about 84 years old. She could be even older than that based on this text. So she is very old. She's an elderly lady. It is strikingly odd that Luke would consider and call this woman a prophetess. Because if you... If you know anything about biblical history and the history of, it, of Israel, there is a 400-year break in between Malachi and the coming of Christ where there was not a prophet. And even in that time, the last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist, 
that we read about a few weeks ago, he thrust onto the scenes, but there's 400 year gap in there where God is not speaking through a, a person or a people anymore. He's silent. And so for Luke to call this woman a prophetess is really striking. It should make us kind of take a step back and really think of what he's, he's trying to say there. There had not been a prophet um, up to, to this point for a long time, and yet Luke calls her a prophet. This woman, and this is my summation of what I have gathered studying about this and what I would attempt to communicate to you. This woman, along with Simeon, because remember, he was careful concerning the law, right? He was righteous, being made right before God, and he was devout, careful con- uh, according to the, the law, justified, sanctified, right? Remember that? That's Simeon. So this woman, along with Simeon, is meant to represent the best of the old covenant people. These two symbolize, these are actual people. So make no mistake about it. These are real people that actually uh, came to, to Jesus and did this. But in these two people, we find a representation of the best that the old covenant has to offer for its people. We see the best of an old covenant redeemed people. Anna connects the coming of the Messiah with the redemption of an entire nation. That an entire nation should be hoping for, but something that, it's something that was lost on a lot of the, the people in Israel because of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of the religious elites who sought to take God's law and then morph it and kind of do whatever they wanted to do with it. She, her heart is clear and it's straightforward. She knows what she's waiting for. She's waiting for the arrival of the salvation of man. She's awaiting the arrival of the chosen one, the anointed one, the holy one of Israel. This is who she's waiting for. So her, along with Simon, are meant to, sorry, not Simon, Simeon, are meant to represent the best of an old covenant people. They're meant to represent the faithful Israel who is still there waiting for the proper Messiah and and who isn't just waiting for a political revolution. They're waiting for salvation. She was a faithful woman of God. She was ready for the coming of Christ, just as Simeon was ready. And look what made them so ready. Look what made her so ready and Simeon so ready. It's basically the same thing. Regular obedience to the normal means of grace that has been given out by God. There's nothing special about what she's been doing. She did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting, uh, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. These are things that God's people do. (laughs) They worship day and night. They pray, they fast, they worship, they make sacrifice, they go to the temple. Yes, they're doing it more often, but this is not an irregular occurrence. This is, what, this is normal faithfulness. This is regular old living for God's people. This is regular obedience, praying, fasting, praising, sacrificing. These are what God, these are how God has said to worship him. And that's enough. What God has said about how he should be worshiped is enough for us. It's gonna be more than enough for us to handle. The normal means of grace should be enough for you and I to worship God. We do not need some special encounter or supernatural event to take place to have our hearts prepared for a movement of God. We need the triune God and we need his word. If we have that, we have everything that we could ever need. The way Simeon and Anna prepared their hearts for the first advent of Christ is the same way that you and I need to prepare our hearts for his second advent. Because friend, brother and sister, he will come again. Amen? He's coming. 
He will raise the quick and the dead. He will take his people home. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. He is coming again. This is good news for those who live in regular, faithful obedience to Christ. The, Holy, the presence of the Holy Spirit within a person, the indwelling of the Spirit within the Christian produces good works, produces faithfulness. And that faithfulness will continue until the day of their death or the, t- the day of Jesus' returns. This is the doctrine of perseverance. What, what did we read about earlier? It is nothing more than an act of the, a steady, continuous act of the Holy Spirit to keep us within God's commands. We want to wait with eager longing, praising God all the day long, keeping the commandments of our king. This is, this is what Christians do. It's normal. It's regular. And that is good that it be so. So may we find joy in being regular in our obedience to God. Because in that regular obedience, God chooses to do absolutely irregular works. He does astounding things in the life of Christians from the beginning uh, in the inception of the church, even in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel. God has done amazing things through regular faithfulness, and he's doing that here. He's showing these, this man and this woman, Simeon and Anna, the simplicity of their faith is bringing about the reality that they get to see this absolutely the long-awaited-for Messiah. They get to see Jesus face-to-face. The glorious truth about Anna and about Simeon is that they were not all that special. They were doing that which God had ordained that they would do. We don't know anything else about them. We know nothing about their history. We know nothing about what, what they did after. Simeon probably died shortly after. He's excited to do so. Anna, she's an old woman. She's going to die soon, right? But they're just, they're just regular old faithful people, and they got to see Christ in the flesh, and they rejoiced over it. She said, it says that she, uh, she gave thanks to God for what he had done in the redemption of Israel. Sorry, redemption of Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph kept the law. So m- moving on in our text, we see in 39 and 40 that Mary and Joseph kept the law. They wanted to be devout. They wanted to be holy. They wanted to be exactly the people that God had set his people apart to be. They attempted to worship God in spirit and in truth by the commands in which he gave they did everything in their power to obey the Lord by keeping his commands. It says that the boy Jesus, this child that Simeon sang over and Anna rejoiced and, and praised God for, this child, this child grew up, became strong, was filled with wisdom and the favor or the grace, in another translation, the grace of God was upon him. Understatement of the millennium, right? Like the grace of God. This is grace personified, literally personified, not even figuratively, right? Literal grace personified in the person of Jesus. We are going to jump from here in our text this morning. We're going to jump to the book of Acts. We're going to see the outworkings of what God has done in the gospel. We're going to see the implications of that on his church that he has now instituted and set up. This transition seems kind of odd, but it almost, I was telling Wes before the sermon, it kind of makes me feel like Star Wars. Stick with me for a moment. So you have Return of the Jedi, which was made in like 1983, I think it was. Um, and then you have 2015, you have, uh, uh, gosh, what's, uh, 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 what's the next one? 
Um, the Force Awakens, that, that's what it is. So you, you have the Return of the Jedi, where evil's defeated, hope it ends on this very hopeful note, and then you jump into uh, the Force Awakens, where it literally opens with a battle scene. The war is still going on. The Empire was not totally defeated. There's this new enemy called the First Order, right? So there's a, a bunch more... But they don't give you all of that information. You kind of have to put things together yourself. As I mentioned in the beginning here, if you're interested in learning more about the life of Christ, go, go back on our Facebook page because I don't think it's on our podcast uh, because we uh, were um, <laughs> in our infancy when we were going through John, so it wasn't on podcast yet. We weren't as bougie as we are now. Uh, but uh, go back, listen to our, our stuff on John on our Facebook page and learn about the, the life of Christ. But eventually we're going to jump into the book of Acts next week. And we're going to kind of, it's going to be kind of this in media rest. It's going to be this point where we jump in in the middle of a narrative. Because ultimately, the gospel doesn't just end. The gospel doesn't just end with the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. What God does in the gospel continues to this day. And, and what he's done to this day starts in the book of Acts. God ordains a people, sets his seal of the Holy Spirit, and then commissions them out. And we see even in Acts 6, they're scattered to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel of Christ. And we see people like Paul and Barnabas going great missionary journeys whereby eventually we get the gospel here in America. And this is good news. We're going to get to study about that in Acts. But right now we get to close. We close with Jesus growing up and, and beginning to be formed as this man who will eventually go on the cross. He's going to die. He's going to die with the names of people like you and me on his lips. And when he said, it is finished, he made an end to all of their sin. And then three days later, he rose, coming out of the grave, securing once for all time a people of his own good pleasure, made to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So prepare your heart for Christ's next coming, because he's alive, he's reigning now at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. And when he comes again, he, it's not going to be to forgive sin. It's going to be to deal with sin. So have your sin dealt with before you go and see Jesus because when you do, he's coming with judgment. He's coming with the sword. The sword that pierced him, he's coming with. So prepare your heart for his next coming and do that by regular old obedience. It's good that we be so regular in our keeping the commands of Christ. Remember that your sin nailed him to that tree. But remember also, the words of Spurgeon, I love this quote, and we'll conclude with this. In the words of Spurgeon, though I have great need for Christ, I have a great Christ for my need. Let, let that be true of us this morning. We pray, and then we'll join in uh, continuing to worship the Lord through song. Let's pray together. God, we are so deeply and profoundly unworthy of the goodness that you have done in purifying us, in giving us a reason to sing, you, God, you have given us unmerited favor, and we are so utterly grateful for this. Lord, we, we are awestruck at your mercy. We want to sing about it. We want to turn our eyes. We want to fix our eyes on the person of Christ. And as we do, we pray that you would give us the strength, the hope, the endurance to live this life with regular obedience. Because in that regular obedience, we get to see you do extraordinary things. So would you come, Father, and enable us to worship you in spirit and truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.